If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. Today's episode is a little bit different. We're going to be deep diving into a conversation about ethics, and we brought in an expert to do just that. My guest today is J.S. Nelson. She is currently a visiting professor at Harvard Business School, where she teaches and writes on issues related to business law, business ethics, and white-collar crime. She concentrates on the way that legal rules shape ethical behavior within business organizations and the impact of different frameworks on white-collar crime. She was the first tenure-track appointment in a U.S. law school specifically to teach business ethics and to develop law school curricula around the subject. Nelson has spent nearly 15 years teaching universities across the country, including Villanova Law School, the Stanford Graduate School of Business, Haas Business School of the University of California at Berkeley, Drucker School at Claremont Graduate University, and the Mahalo School at Cal State Fullerton. Prior to her work in academia, Professor Nelson served as staff counsel for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, and she clerked for the Honorable David M. Ebel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit and Honorable William H. Yone Jr. of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. She also worked as a deputy district attorney and as a business litigator in Denver, Colorado. She's a graduate of Harvard Law School, where she was the Supreme Court co-chair of the Harvard Law Review. She earned a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science with honors and distinction in the major from Yale University. I really appreciate our conversation today. Like I said, we dove really deep into this conversation surrounding ethics and relationships, how you should speak up if you're in an unethical environment, how people can audit themselves who are running large companies to make sure that they are running an ethical environment themselves. And it was just such a value-packed conversation, and I know you're really going to appreciate it. So let's get into my interview with Professor J.S. Nelson. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. JS, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. It's my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Travis. Yeah, really excited to have you on the show. And first and foremost, how did you get interested in this world? Because, you know, the world of talking about ethics, when it comes into talking about law, business, it's not necessarily the thing I imagine a a five-year-old going like, that's my dream. Someday I'm going to do this. So How did you first get introduced to this world, first and foremost? Well, first of all, I love it because, you know, five years, five-year-olds are actually the most interested in ethics. They really Mm. are. They're, you know, like, that's not fair, (laughs) right? right. It's a very deep-seated thing for us all in the sense of, you know, finding our place in the world and thinking about how we can contribute to things, but also, you know, realizing that we're part of society, we're part of communities, we're in relationships with people to do things. And so I'd say, you know, my big takeaway would be actually business ethics is everyone's problem and everyone's (laughs) feeling and everyone should own it. That's really something we tend to lose that language as we get older and we start talking about things purely as cost benefit analyses and the rest of it. But I think there is a deep intuition there that's right. And the science is bearing us out 
in that we often know what to do. And really the problem is making sure that we are empowered to do it. Yeah. This is a huge thing because then you mentioned it before we hit record, like the question with a lot of entrepreneurs out there, a lot of people who are running a business, you know, the question of ethics seems like something to discuss in a, you know, college ethics class, you know, versus in functional business, it can get into this conversation of what does this have to do with me? What is it? What does this have to do with what I'm doing? So first, this is, could be a very long question, a very long answer, I'm sure. But on a baseline level, when you talk about ethics, what are you referring to? And just to lay down a definition right out of the gate for the rest of the conversation. And then two, and we can follow up with this is why is this so important for every entrepreneur or business owner to have a rudimentary grasp of? Yes. Well, to take the first part of your question, what is ethics, specifically business ethics? It's how we treat each other in the world. It's Mm. thinking about who we are, who we want to be, and our relationships with other people. It's very fundamental. And in thinking about this as a part of your business and a part of what you put out in the world and what you receive in the world, we do know that how you treat other people really affects what comes back as well. And so you have an enormous amount of agency here. And actually, the data seems to show, and we can talk more about this, this is a competitive advantage. People Hmm. want to do business with other people who are ethical. They want to be involved with people that they trust, they like, feel that will treat them fairly. And frankly, the quality of life is better for everyone. We know that people who are acting unethically actually literally have cognitive distance inside. I mean, this can affect your health. If you, you know, one of the things that's very most basic about human beings is we have a very strong disgust reaction and it's horrendous for your personal health and relationships to have a reaction of literal disgust to yourself when you look in the mirror and you think about who you are. It's just, it tears people apart in all kinds of ways. So we have other choices and we can turn these things around and, and they are actually things that we know how to do now. For a long time, ethics was this idea of, oh, well, you either have it or you don't, you know, or you'll hear another version of that. You know, I got it in Sunday school, Hebrew school, the mosque, whatever it was that was your formative last conversations about ethics and what it meant. And actually, it turns out that ethics is something that very much has to be managed. It's not as though you are the same person in every situation. This is very much what the science is showing us, that you can give a very different answer to the same question, depending on the context of the question. So if we find you on the steps of church on Sunday, we ask you for a contribution, your answer may be very different than if we find you on the trading floor in the middle of a really busy day. It's the same person, but very different answers, very different actions, very different behavior. And so part of what you have to do is understand who you are and who you want to be in different situations. And that takes a lot of awareness and Mm -hmm. it takes actual ethical engagement and thinking about ethics as ethics. So not just, oh, I'll never do anything wrong. But what we're increasingly seeing is that people can be put in situations in which we trigger certain behaviors. And then they don't recognize themselves. And then Mm. you get this snowball effect where they just get further and further from who they want to be and who they want to see in the mirror and the life that they would want for themselves and for other people and will recognize. And so really in having this conversation, it's taking the agency back, taking that control back, saying, no, this is something I can manage and this is something I can control and think about consciously, just like I would think about so many other skills and so many other parts of my life. And especially in starting a business, this is something that is front and center and in your control and actually something that's advantageous to you 
in starting your business and in thinking about building that network and your position, your reputation in the world. Yeah. I mean, perception is everything in a lot of realms. And, you know, you give the example of church steps versus a stock trading floor and in people's mind, even if they're in the world of stocks, you know, and they find themselves in that position, there's a clear kind of cultural view of some of these different roles. And you mentioned that ethics is a competitive advantage, which I'd love to expound on a little bit, but you know, one thing I do want to talk about before we talk about the right way to do things is a lot of people tend to see putting ethics aside as being a competitive advantage, especially when we get into high performance sales, when you get into trading, when you get into some of these roles that historically have contained not always the best people or best practices. You know, what would you say as far as your research when you look at people who have tried to skirt ethics in order to grow quickly, bring in more financial capital, attain more power versus people who have embraced ethics and how that's influenced and given them that competitive advantage? A great question. And really, I want to get to something which is underlying the question, which is this idea that they're just bad people in bad places. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding is it's not bad apples or even bad barrels of apples. It's how the who's managing the orchard and how the orchard's managed, right? Mm. It's we can now, with enough laboratory experiments and situations and studies inside corporations, pretty much get, I mean it's stunning, but we can get almost anyone to do anything, right? If we get you hungry, tired, cold, under pressure, you know, sleep deprived, you know, there's a recipe for getting to people to do terrible behavior, right? right <laughs> and so it's not just get good people and put them in the positions and leave them alone. It's really thinking about the environment that you're in and what it triggers in you. And so, yes, there are really high pressure sales environments in which you're being told you have to meet a quota or else. We have known since the 1950s, if you tell people to just meet quotas, you're telling them to cheat. We've known that since the 1950s in management. So it's got to be more sophisticated than that in the sense of, okay, we have these goals. We want you to behave a certain way, but please think about the means by which you attain those goals. You know, we're going to think about customer satisfaction. We're going to think about the other things. And that actually, what you see often in business ethics is companies self-destructing and people mm -hmm. self-destructing. And so there are real warning signs that we can flag in advance of these kinds of moments in which corporations go, go off the cliff. So, you know, Volkswagen and the emissions cheating scandal, Boeing and the 737 MAX aircraft. You can name thing after thing after thing, and they tend to follow certain patterns. And those patterns are really the issue because mm -hmm. if you're a person caught up in that, you may not always realize how caught up you are in this pattern and how you're justifying your behavior by all these rationalizations. Oh, everyone around me cheats. Oh, every, you know, mm -hmm. this is what I have to do to get ahead. This is, and, and so I would say a couple of things, challenge those rationalizations because you may find that there are actually models of people behaving decently and doing things that comport with their own idea of who they are and their own sense of ethics, and they may be doing very well. And in fact, the data seem to show that those are the companies and industries and places in which there are consistently profitable returns year in, year out. They're much more stable. They tend not to explode, implode, you know, like these other places. They also tend to be 
better places to work in terms of, you know, people, people are willing to invest more in their workplace. They're willing to invest more in ideas and innovation. They're willing to often work for less money. If you mm-hmm. give them that. And Everyone the just type. perked up that runs a business. Oh, like, yeah. I'm telling you, this is a competitive <laughs> advantage. This really yeah. is something where this can be managed for advantage. And if you, especially in this tight labor market, leading with, you know, we are a place in which you will enjoy working and you will feel good about working every day. Wow. Mm-hmm. That would get huge response. And not only that, but we're really seeing this strike a chord with millennials, right? And we're in the middle of a $40 trillion transfer of wealth to millennials. Mm -hmm. Like the largest intergenerational transfers we've ever seen. Not the largest by far. So really the millennials, you know, they are not just your employees. They're your customers. They're your investors. They're everywhere around you. You cannot get away from millennials. (laughs) And they feel very, very strongly about this. And even more importantly, they're very sensitive to hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. So if you say that you, you know, comport with ethical codes, but you don't actually do it, you're going to see them leave for the exits immediately. And then nobody's going to work for you, you know, much less work for you for less money and harder and embracing your sense of mission. So it really is interesting because you often see companies that are having ethical problems have to pay more because nobody yeah. wants to be associated with them. They don't right. want the feeling of literally being at that workplace and they certainly don't want that on their resume. So they'll yeah. run from that. Yeah. You have to make up for it with a high payment plan, but then there's still no loyalty because they're not bought in. No, the and they're thing. out the yeah. door. So, yeah. so you know, it, you can't invest in people. You can't grow what you want to grow. You're building on quickstand. So yeah. it's really hard. And I would say, so it's, it's a false choice. You know, if you, you can do this right and you can do this well and you can be rewarded for it, not only can be, will be rewarded for this and building a profitable company over the long term yeah, with I, people who want to be there. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, so much of what you have talked about thus far has been what the leadership is doing and the environment that's being cultivated. And I did an interview for a, a different podcast back probably five or six months ago with uh, Dr. Brian Kloss, and he wrote a book called Corruptible, which very adjacent to a lot of what you talk about. And he talks about that a lot, like the environment that you create and the way that you market yourself as a company is going to change the types of people that are drawn to come work with you. And so he gives the example of two police departments, one that's marketed themselves with like tanks and the armor and, you know, the Punisher skull popping up on the screen. And then There was another police station in, I believe, New Zealand that was heavy on showing police officers, you know, doing acts of service for people in the community, smiling, joking. They had minorities, they had females within this promotional video. And the quality of applicants was night and day between power hungry, aggressive, you know, not great candidates for the one and people that genuinely love their community and who wouldn't normally apply for a role in law enforcement, you know, they found themselves positioned a different way. And I think from, you know, for somebody sitting here and saying, I want to create a culture that's drawing good people because it can very quickly become yet yet one or two bad apples. It does spoil the whole bunch. How do you start course correcting and turning culture to be one that is positive, focused on ethics and still is, you know, drawing people that you want working for you and they're going to have that loyalty? This is a great question because we know a lot now about how to build ethical cultures. We have the recipe. And so I talk a lot about this in the book, but the big takeaways 
especially for our audience thinking about this right now, like what can I do tomorrow morning? I think about psychological safety. Think about can people tell you what's actually going on? Are you getting the real truth? Because you can't manage an organization if you don't have the information to act on. You don't know what's coming. And so we tend to see these cycles where what it is, is it, you know, something pops up and then all of a sudden the management is putting out fires here, 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 here. And they didn't even know about that one, but that one's on fire too, right? Mm -hmm. And so to get ahead of this, because often what you're saying is, you know, what you're saying is exactly right. When there's an ethical problem inside the organization, everybody watches that and says, oh, that's how you get ahead. Let Mm -hmm. me emulate that. And then you have a problem in accounting and in marketing and in this and in that and the next, like it spreads. But the, the flip side is really interesting too, because it can be nipped in the bud very early and, and very easily. So it's as simple as saying, when you start seeing misconduct happen, that's not who we are. Mm -hmm. We will not do that. So it's thinking about the stories you tell, right? Mm -hmm. The customer service agent who actually funded somebody's money because, you know, that was the right thing to do. All right. That's interesting. That's a very different story to tell as a matter of your culture than, oh, look at this person sold, you know, five different accounts to somebody who didn't need it. Oh, great for that. You know, like the, the, the narrative of who you are as a company and what you, what you hold up as the behavior that you want is really important. And then every criminologist will tell you that instead of punishing big and seldomly, you really want to punish small and often. And it's not even punishment, it's corrections. It's feedback, right? It's like, think about parenting a child, right? You know, use your knife and fork. Here we go. (laughs) All of the little pieces to guide someone as to what is expected and what is not, you know, what is expected in this situation and what's not acceptable behavior. And it can be very subtle. It doesn't even have to be financial in in the sense of like, you know, we can have a conversation about that was not okay. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, how about thinking about doing it this way because we're concerned about where that track goes. So you can get it very early and you can keep what we call the ethical slide from happening because literally in the brain, you can watch this light up where the first time someone transgresses, all of a sudden the amygdala, the fear center lights up and they think, oh, what's going to happen, right? And you have a moment of feedback right there. Where if you said, no, you know, the way you did this account, it's not the way we do it. Please do it again, right? But that might be all that needs to be said. And that person will not do it again, right? But if that fierce response lights up and then nothing happens, Hmm. then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it permeates the company and you really have something going on. So there's a wonderfully gifted researcher who's been in this field for a really long time named Linda Trevino. And Dr. Trevino has this great expression, which I'm going to completely borrow, which is ethics is a garden. You have to tend it and you have to, you you will have something grow, (laughs) but make sure that it's what you plant and that you come back to it and you think about how that garden is growing and and that you're getting the results that you want as you're going along. So I say one, psychological safety. So you get the feedback Two, a speak up culture so that people who do see something, say something, and they get the right response from management, which is, oh, thank you. That's not the way we want to do things around here. So let's fix that. Right. People are watching what the response is. And I would say on top of that, there's really got to be buy-in. So using the language of ethics, using language of who we are, what we want mm-hmm. to do, that those kinds of comments are welcome in meetings. 
you know, in our advertising campaign. I'm not sure that's the message we want to send. Mm -hmm. Who are we? And you, you mentioned the two different police departments, right? Their messaging in their advertising told you a lot about who they imagined themselves to be. Right. And people will be attracted to that vision and sort themselves accordingly. Yeah, I love that. That's not who we are. We had a conversation about parenting recently, and that was one of the things that came up that someone had taught me a few years ago, long before I had kids on my radar. Yeah. And they were talking about, you know, a lot of parents make a mistake when their kids, you know, do something or break something or throw a fit. They'll say, you're such a bad girl, or you're such a naughty kid, or you're such a liar, you're such a brat, you know, all those labels and kids will start living into those labels. And yes. it terrified me. And when I had a kid, I was like, I've tried to be so careful not to do this, but instead going, you know, you're acting this way. You're not like this. Like, that's not how or you Or that's act. not how yeah. we eat at the dinner table. That's right. not what we do. That's not what, you know, and just setting those expectations for people. Yeah. And we are a very social species. We want to conform. That's part of what's going on, right? That we are looking for models, we're looking for clues, we're looking for how we are supposed to act in this situation. And everyone's looking for, you know, how do I get ahead? What is the secret sauce here? And who should I emulate? And so you want to make sure that you've answered that question by saying, this is what's expected in this situation. This is how we would like you to react. This mm -hmm. is how we like, this defines who we are and yeah. what's acceptable and how we do things. And it's very subtle. I mean, it doesn't have to be huge disciplinary things. And one thing we know about managers is that they, you know, one of their least favorite things to do is actually manage and give negative feedback to employees. Yeah. But this is a simple one. This is a really simple one. The way that any parent, you know, in the situation that you're talking about would give the feedback to the child because that's love, right? Mm -hmm you're raising a child that's got to be able to eat at the dinner table or whatever it is, right? Has to be able to read, you know, <laughs> so, or write or be in the world. And so you're giving them those skills and you can think of it as that same giving to an employee by saying, no, oh, look, let me help you here. Mm -hmm. This is the way through this. And we're going to watch this and make sure that you really have this. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. People are definitely, I mean, multiple and want to find a culture to fit into, which is one of the reasons on the flip side, so many, you know, non-ethical environments can grow rapidly too, is that people will find out oh, this is bad. I mean, you watch like a Wolf of Wall Street, that's pretty much the, the movie, you know, it's like all patterning after one person who wasn't particularly the, the shining example of ethics and business, you know, but it's like, you see these groups grow and thrive and start following the example set before them, which puts a lot of pressure, I think, on those that are in positions of leadership. And so this obviously I think starts before you have 20 people working for you or a hundred people working for you. How can someone who's listening, who's, Hey, I'm a solopreneur. Maybe they're in their early twenties. They're, they're, Right now they're fulfilling, they're selling, they're doing all the work. How do they audit themselves to make sure that when they bring on that first employee, when they start bringing in a team around them, they have figured out what they stand for and you know what is and isn't okay within their culture, even though right now it's totally just a thought in their mind. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates 
fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. At some point, let me just drop a pin and say, let's come back to the question about how prevalent this is and what okay. this looks like as yeah. a larger dynamic, because there's more to say there. Let me answer the question you asked, which is that, which is about say a sole entrepreneur or someone who's trying to think about their own ethics in their situation and they're, they're setting this up. I would say there's some really important guidelines and that is we have thousands of years of ethical thought about how to treat others and what's expected. And also, you know, trust the baseline of what you have been given, you know, by the society. You know, we do, you know, what's really fascinating in ethics is, and you and I were talking about this, it's less that people don't know what to do. It's that they don't feel empowered to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Most people actually have very good gut instincts about what the right thing is to do in this situation. And it's fascinating because those hold across all kinds of cultures and all kinds of behaviors. You can run experiments on this and pretty much everyone believes in reciprocity, everybody believes in justice and fairness. It may manifest in different cultures in different ways, but we all kind of have the same core reactions to things which tells you that this is universal and will be received well across all kinds of cultures too. You know, acting on your ethics and being an ethical person is something that resonates for so many people in so many contexts. So this is really worthwhile. This is part of the secret sauce of doing business, right? How do you do this? Um, Especially if you feel that you're being buffeted by a situation or pulled in different directions by pressures around you. I'd say a bunch of things. One, some of the checks on our behavior, now this is thousands of years of moral philosophy, we know pretty much what we're supposed to be doing when an ethical question is called an ethical question. So there are lots of ways in which you can give yourself that gut check. Would I want to see this on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times? Would I want to tell my grandmother what I'm doing or whoever it is that you really respect my mother, my, you know, whoever is the person, you know, you can get a group of other advisors, and this is a really powerful thing for entrepreneurs to always have these kinds of contacts. Your personal 
board of ethical advisors, people who you respect, who have found their way through it or are finding their way through it with you, where you can talk to them about this. Probably not people necessarily inside your own company, but could happen. But, you know, think about and bounce things off of them because sometimes you know what you should be doing, but you need to give yourself options. You need to give yourself options how to get there. Right. And also, you know, basic things like the golden rule, like how would I feel if this were done to me? You know, there are lots and lots of formulations from many different religious backgrounds, from many different places in training and ethics, but they all do the same thing, which is to slow you down, reframe this as an ethical question, not just a cost benefit analysis of, you know, the business rationale of I have to do this right now. And, you know, it's a business necessity or whatever else the excuse is, but really literally reframe it as an ethical question. Wait a minute, there are human beings who are affected if I move this money from here to here. Mm -hmm. Not just money and numbers, but human beings. Mm -hmm. Let me put the human beings on the radar system and think about that and think about those implications and those impacts. And all of a sudden my decision feels different. Mm -hmm. And it's really powerful to bring this up in meetings, by the way. You know, bring the humanity of the situation back in. And have people confront it. You don't have to do it in a confrontational way, but just mm-hmm. being willing to say, yes, we could do that thing, but it could have this impact. Are we comfortable with that? Let's mm-hmm. look that square in the face. Okay. Well, maybe it's not a question of we do it or we don't do it, but could we do it a different way that better comports with our values? Mm-hmm. You know, being more creative, slowing down, being more creative and thinking about building for the long term and for something that you would be proud of. It's incredibly powerful. And it, it, it can be done by anyone who's willing to actually think about it as an ethical question and allow themselves to resonate with that question, allow other people to resonate with that question. And it draws people to you. So do you want me to turn to that issue of Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. That's so a another natural issue. transition, I feel yeah, like it's a that. natural transition. So just looking at sort of what we know about human behavior writ large. And this is a back of the napkin kind of description. Of course, there's lots of research on this. But we know that there are about 7 to 8% of the population who are hardcore cheaters. They cheat on their MBA applications. They cheat in online gaming systems. They cheat anytime they can cheat, they will cheat. It's about 7 to 8% of the population. And they're just going to do whatever they're going to do, you know? And often it's the limits of the system, right? You know, oh, I guess I shouldn't <laughs> cheat that badly because I'll get caught. Like, So those are the people who, you know, really, whatever system you put them in, they might cheat even for really small amounts of money. It doesn't make sense, right? But there have to be repercussions for those people or they will continue to get, their behavior will continue to get worse and worse. And then on the other end of the spectrum, and this is less well studied, but it's say. We're finding that there are like, I don't know, 2% or so who are people who are very, very rigid and they will always do what's right, regardless of social pressure, regardless of any kind of context. And they tend to be less than comfortable people to be around. They're the Mother Teresa's who are just going to do right. whatever they're going to, you know. And so they can be uncomfortable in situations and uncomfortable in families and uncomfortable, but they're very rigid and they're not. They're not influenced by social pressure, which is a really interesting phenomenon. And that's only two percent. And that's two to three percent. Yeah, like in every context, right? We seem to find the numbers are a little. We're still trying to figure out exactly what those numbers are in there. But if you take the seven eight percent and you take the two to three percent, that's ten percent of the population who are pretty fixed where Mm -hmm. they're going to be. So what we're arguing about is the ninety percent of the population in the middle. 
And we find that the 90% of the population in the middle are really swayed by the context and the pressures that they're under. And so you, those are the people who can be very different people in different situations. And you've got to think about the pressures that you allow yourself to be under and how you respond to those pressures. So it's the vast majority of us, the 90% who really have to think about ethics as something that's got to be actively managed because we can be pushed mm -hmm. toward either end of the spectrum, depending on what we allow ourselves to do and the, and the pressures that we absorb and how we understand what we need to do in that situation. But I will also say there's something really, really interesting. And we can see this from online gaming systems and other things where one of the major problems about studying misconduct is you have to make sure you study it so that people don't know you're studying it, <laughs> right? Because they'll keep an eye on the Yeah, because, you know, or, you know, you want to see behavior in the wild or whatever that is, right? You yeah, want to be sure. affecting it. So if you look at fascinating studies of online gaming systems, for example, what we see is that seven to eight percent of people did those cheaters, but it's interesting because other people shun them. That vast rest of the population shuns cheaters. Mm -hmm. It's an automatic reaction and they don't want to associate with them. They don't want to be around them. And so the cheaters end up gaming with each other and connecting with each other. And it becomes a small insular group of people who are cheating and they're cheating each other. That's fascinating because it tells you how cheating behavior is perceived by the vast majority of the population. It tells you that there's that disgust response, right? That they're literally leaving the interactions with those people and they're going elsewhere. And they will go to extraordinary lengths to go elsewhere, right? They don't want to deal with people labeled as cheaters who are cheaters who are behaving that way. So that also tells you something that tells you that the, the innate behavior for the vast majority of us is not to deal with cheaters, not to want to be around them. And that's a really powerful thing to realize because that disgust response that we started with at the very beginning, it's incredibly powerful. It's incredibly strong. And it's like, you know, we have a disgust response and we don't want to deal with that thing on a daily basis or at all. You know, it smells like garbage, that level of disgust that I don't want to be around that thing. It's like a reaction to a disease or something. It's really strong. It's really interesting. It's really, really deep in us. So I would say if you're going to cheat, you got to realize that that's the response that you are very likely to get. And so you will be isolating yourself and you will be going toward the other people who cheat and the vast majority of people will not want to do business with you. And if they do business with you, they will not do it on the same terms as they would with someone they trust, right? The contracts are going to be you know, much tighter and much more punitive. The terms are going to be much more rigorous and you're going to have to pay a much higher price because they're pricing in risk of dealing with you. You know, all of these other things, you can no longer do business on a handshake. And I would say, especially for our audience right here and right now, if you're an entrepreneur and you need funding and you need to be able to have your word be good, that's a really, really important asset. You need to be able to do business on a handshake. You need to be able to be the kind of person that other people trust and affirmatively like, not have literally a disgust response to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. I want to know on this perspective, because one thing that I talk about a lot, and this might be out of left field somewhat, but I'm kind of curious to know the perspective here. So I host another podcast where I interview survivors of clergy abuse. And so we talk a lot about wow. obviously corrupt organizations, cover up, things like that. And I bring that up for a reason based on what you just said. So we've talked about the leadership side but one position that a lot of people find themselves in is being part of an organization that they're seeing unethical behavior happen. And obviously in 
case of clergy, there's their spiritual life. And then in the case of business, they've got their financial life. Sometimes those two even cross over. And the question becomes, you know, when you're in an environment like that, how much time do you commit to trying to change it from the inside versus should you leave because there's no way you're going to turn it around yourself? I'm kind of curious to get your response on that for someone who is maybe within a sales organization where they're seeing a lot of unethical behavior. Should they stay and attempt to turn the ship? What signs should they look for to make that decision? And Or should someone just, if they see it, they should just step away and try to find something else? Obviously, it's a heavy decision with a lot of factors depending on specifics, but I was kind of curious in your perspective there. Yeah, that's a really important question. It's a deep question. I think the answer will be different for everyone in the sense of there are steps that you can try first. You know, because actually looking across the business landscape, we need ethical people in organizations. We need them to stay in organizations. We need them to be promoted within organizations. We need them leading organizations. So we don't necessarily just want to tell them, you know, run for the exits. That's not going to. And we need them to have good careers, right? We need them to own this and to infuse this and all the things that they're doing and have this language and have this this core to their their thinking about what it means to be in business and, and run those organizations. So I would say, depending on where you are in the level of a hierarchy, there's a great program called Giving Voice to Values. This is Dr. Mary Gentile's work, and it gives you specific ways to speak truth to power without being fired. And it has to do, you know, take a look at her work. But I also like to send people to the Ethics Unwrapped video series, which is available for free through the University of Texas Macomb School of Business. It's little video snippets, little cartoons that you can watch with no time at all, but it gives you specific techniques, things like thinking through what the actual objection is to the behavior, thinking through what the counters are going to be, because you're going to get pushback. Mm -hmm. So rehearsing with somebody else and thinking through where you could get an objection to what you're talking about, literally rehearsing a speech and rehearsing what you have to say in front of the mirror. So it's smooth. So you're confident so that you don't react emotionally to something that's a pushback and that you're expecting, you know, counters. There are literal techniques for this. And also using the language of the organization so that if they say, you know, here are ethical values, you can call to those ethical values and say, okay, this is who we say we are. Let's be that, Mm -hmm. you know, let's do that. Right now. Is that going to work all the time? No, there are just times when it's a corrupt organization and it's corrupt at all points. And that's, they're looking the ethical question straight in the face and they want to cheat, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And if you really find yourself to the point where you're starting to have a disgust response with your ability to work there and be in that environment, then you need to do something about it because your own health is at stake. Your mm. own well-being is at stake and your life is precious. And we are an accumulation of how we spend our time and energy. And you want to be spending your time and energy doing the things that you love and feel make hopefully make the world a better place and move the ball forward. But there are things to try before you sort of take your marbles and go home. And really, like I said, from the beginning, you know, if you're having that kind of response, you're incredibly important to the organization, whether they know it or not, Mm -hmm. right? They need to hear the ethical question because Maybe the people above you are blinded to it at this point. Maybe they just don't see it. Maybe there's something. So that's part of that psychological safety, speak up culture, hearing this. And it really enlightened management will realize that you're giving them a gift. You're giving Mm -hmm. them a gift of the warning signals early so that they can do something about it. Now, will they do the right thing? You hope that they would. Yeah. 
But that's also a signal for you about what kind of organization you've joined and and what you're working with. Yeah, that's huge. Well, as we wrap up here, I want to ask just two more quick questions. I mean, we talked about before we record, people always say, oh, it's things have changed drastically, you know, like, oh, the, the ethics landscape and the issues have changed or gone up or gone down. And you seem to think like, it seems like it's all been pretty much the same. It's just different ways that it presents itself. Is that correct? I mean, there's the same issues happen, just different formats and modes, depending on the workspace or the type of thing that we're doing. I mean, is that accurate? I said, that's a very elementary way to say it. That's a great question. I think that what we're looking at is human beings and human behavior. So Mm -hmm. has that changed? Well, maybe it expresses itself different ways. Maybe we're under more pressure than we were before. We're certainly more hurried. And Mm -hmm. ethics takes that moment of slowing down and thinking about something as an ethical issue. And so we tend to lose ethics the moment that we're under pressure and have to answer emails in every direction and text and Slack. And (laughs) all the bells and whistles are going off. That is not the moment in which it is the easiest to have the deep reflection that you actually need to be on top of your own ethical decisions. Has the work from home, because most people's workspaces change drastically and working from home has felt, I know for me, and I'm sure it's representative of a lot of other people, it's felt like both a slowdown where I've had more time to think about certain things, but it's also been a lot more hustle and bustle and your day seems almost crazier because you're going from home and transitioning to work and all those sorts of things. Has that been helpful, you think, to this conversation that people have been home away from these work environments? Do you think it's been unhelpful because people have less time to -to one-to-one with people and talk through these issues? How have you seen kind of the work from home environment affect that within company culture? That's a great question. And I would see it cutting a couple of different ways. I would say being in your home environment and with your family perhaps grounds us more and says, okay, it's not just a theoretical question of, you know, am I okay telling grandma what I did today? I might actually have to tell grandma what I did today. (laughs) She's sitting there at the dinner table when I finish, you know, the Zoom with you or whatever. In that sense, it has given people the priorities that are most important to them front and center. And so I think that we are seeing with the great resignation, a lot more people just saying, I don't want to feel bent out of shape. I don't like what I'm doing and I don't like who I am when I do it. And that's a really important point. So maybe it's gotten more real for people and it's grounded them a little more in the ethical questions of what they're actually doing. In terms of the other way in which this is pushing, we're seeing, and this is actually this the next book that I'm writing, <laughs> we're seeing management start to worry that they're losing control, losing control over the people who work for them and what those people are doing on a daily basis when they can't physically see them in an office space and walk around and monitor them. So we're seeing increasing electronic surveillance of people at home. So I won't go too far into this, but this is subject to the next book. Um, Really thinking about what that electronic surveillance is. Mm. Often you're seeing you know, photos taken through your workplace camera or your laptop every five to 10 minutes, your conversations recorded, your email logged and analyzed by AI. You know, it's just an enormous amount of surveillance, which is then happening to people in their homes, maybe at their kitchen tables, but also possibly in their bedrooms with their children and their spouses and all the rest of it. So it's really blurring that line between what counts as a workplace and what doesn't count as a workplace and what it's appropriate for an employer to be looking at when they're thinking about workers as workers, right? Mm -hmm. So, and you're starting to see what some sociologists are calling greedy jobs, where an employer will just 
try to take over all mm-hmm. of the worker's life. And that is starting to happen in a way that it's been a trend for a while, but in a way COVID broke down some of the last of those barriers because they can literally yeah. find you at home, <laughs> right? And yeah, there was right. no limit to that, right? right? There was no, okay, I'll see you in It was in, a big win the for them, office. yeah, to be able to have that last tentacle, you know, wrapped around that employee. Yeah, it's a scary it, time, yeah. It can be. And I think that what you're also seeing, you know, part of what employers don't necessarily realize about this, but this is also part of the research that we're finding is that you lose your star performers that way. You lose your star performers, you lose women, you lose minorities, you lose people Mm -hmm. who are actually most diverse because they experience the surveillance as particularly invasive and they tend to leave. And so just like with other business ethics issues, people vote with their feet. And so when you see these business ethics questions coming up, people get out. You know, if you see a place with high turnover, you have to wonder what's going on there. And it's often bullying, right? It's often, you know, unreasonable pressure to do things that cut corners or otherwise are uncomfortable. There's something happening where people are reacting to those workplaces and people leave and they leave fast. And then I think that the other thing that's happening is people are leaving faster and having less tolerance for it. But they're also happier with the jobs that they do have and more committed to those jobs. So it's this idea of either you move with this next generation and you move with those trends and to address those issues, or you get left behind because people aren't going to work for you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, this has been really valuable and I'm fascinated by these conversations. Like I said, with some of the other work that I do with a lot of the advocacy stuff. I mean, it's, I'm always fascinated by culture, by ethics, by the way that people respond to different environments and changes. And so I love conversations like these. I know people listening do as well. There's probably some that are going, oh, I don't want to hear about this stuff, but it is important. You know, and I think the ones that really grasp this, like you said, it's going to work out for them well. I think the people that navigate toward this, that have more transparency, that have more ethical environments, it's going to be a benefit in the long term. For those that want to hear more from you, follow you, I know you said you're working on a new book. I know you've worked extensively in this area. What's the best place for people to connect with you, find more information from you and, and kind of see what you're working on? Sure. Well, I have a website. It's jsnelson.net. And there's book information up there. This particular book with the late Lynn Stout, she wrote The Shareholder Value Myth and some other books that your listeners may recognize. This was a particular labor of love and I have more work that is coming out and addresses a lot of these questions. And I would say that this is really powerful stuff and that people are craving these conversations. It's really interesting. We're looking at the science, we're looking at the tools, we're looking at what's happening. And there's a lot of evidence that getting this right is good for businesses, but it's good for people individually too and their careers. And Adam Grant is another researcher who's done work on this. He has a book on people who are givers, who really have the ethics in place. I actually do better over the course of their careers, significantly better. And so this is really a set of tools that everyone should have it as their own. These are tools for businesses. These are tools for individuals. These are tools for everyone. And and I think that part of what we need to raise, we need to exactly have these kinds of conversations and we need to make sure that people are conscious of the decisions that they make. And there are a ton of resources everywhere. I will actually mention one more thing, which is that in the back of this particular book that's coming out right now, the book is Business Ethics, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's with the late Lindstadt that I mentioned and the Oxford University Press. And there's actually an appendix of resources at mm. the back. People you can turn to resources that may be helpful and it's organized chapter by chapter and theme by theme. So 
that's another place that I would send people to. Love that. Love that. Well, thank you for being a resource and for talking so much about these issues. It's really valuable. And it means a lot to me that you took the time to have this conversation today. So thanks again. I'm deeply honored. Thank you for having me, Travis. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapelcom slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.